Uh, Friends, let us turn back to Matthew chapter 13. And we'll take as our text the words of uh, Matthew chapter 3, sorry, and verse 13. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And so on. Now we have been looking at the, the land of Jesus. We looked at uh, Bethlehem and we looked at Egypt and Nazareth. And then last week we looked at Jesus and his many visits to the temple. If you like as an excursion from the a more chronological order of our study. And so today we're rewinding back from the, the later temple visits of his ministry But we're also fast-forwarding, if you like, 18 years uh, from the temple visit uh, that he made when he was 12 years old. And so we are here then at the beginning of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he entered into this office of public ministry in a very significant way. He went to John the Baptist to be baptized of him. And this meant that he was leaving Galilee and Nazareth in the north and traveling down and then crossing over the Jordan River to the eastern side of the Jordan to a small town on the eastern banks called Bethabara. And the name means, as most places, Beth means house. Bethlehem is house of bread. Bethabara is house of the ford. So there was a ford across the river here Jesus crosses and that is where John was baptizing and uh, the gospel of John records the place name although it is not here in Matthew's account as Bethabara. Now uh, just a little bit on the place as an aside if you like. It means house of the ford. A ford of course is a shallow place in a river or a stream which allows you to to walk across it and not be swept away or drive across it in our modern times very often. But a ford is a a shallow place in a river or stream allowing you to get across. Now it may be that the water there is only ankle deep but it may be up to your knees but certainly it's not sufficient to be over your head and overwhelm you and carry you away. It's a shallower part of the river. And yet this was the location of John's baptizing in the first place on the east of Jordan. And we notice that the very place where this was happening was a place where the water was so shallow that you could walk across the river. It was a ford. I'm not saying it would be impossible certainly there to gather enough water to totally immerse yourself underneath it. Uh, But it is noticeable that John the Baptist chose this place and did not think it necessary to find a place with deeper water if indeed it was the case that we were required to totally immerse everyone in the practice of baptism. Later, of course, John would move from the eastern side of the Jordan to the western side to a place called Anon near Salem. 
And we are told there he went there particularly because there was much water in that place. There was plenty of water, and there was. But that is often taken as proof, therefore, it must have been immersion. But not so when you compare it, first of all, with Bethabara, which is here. But also the word Enon means a fountain or a spring. And it was in the fountains or springs of Enon near Salem on the banks of Jordan that John was baptizing. Anyway, that's as a little reminder just that the biblical evidence does not favor complete immersion underneath the water. Now, let's get back to Bethabara. Bethabara, this place where Jesus has gone in order to be baptized, this house of the ford on the eastern bank of the river Jordan. This was the place where the heavens opened when John baptized Jesus. What do we need to know about this place in the experience of Jesus? I want to think of it, first of all, as the place of Old Testament fulfillment. Bethabara is the place of Old Testament fulfillment. As John sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized, John is taken aback and John is confused. John is unsure. John is deeply reluctant to baptize Jesus. Why is Jesus coming for baptism? John's baptism had been very clear. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John had expected those who came to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, as an evidence of their true confession of their sin and sorrow at it. How could Jesus then submit to this baptism of repentance? And what did it mean for Jesus? You see, we can't take it. John was doing all this baptizing of all these people. And then along comes Jesus who baptized. And we can't give the baptism of Jesus some completely different, unrelated meaning that it had never had before for anyone else that John was baptizing. There must be something that ties in John's baptizing of this people with a baptism of repentance and this baptizing of Jesus who needs no repentance. It is, we imagine there was a large throng of people, probably some sort of a queue for those who are being baptized. Jesus is part of that. Someone is baptized just before him with one meaning. How then at the very next moment can it have a different meaning for Jesus' baptism? What was John's message would help us understand this. John was sent to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. According to his father, Zacharias, Zacharias had a prophecy that John was to be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of of their sins. That was John's mission. To go before the Lord. To herald the arrival at last. Of the one who was promised. To announce the imminent arrival of the king to his kingdom. And to urge the people to prepare for his coming. By means of repenting of their sins. And receiving the mark of baptism. And that's why John kept mentioning to them the kingdom. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. Do you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, he was saying. Do you want to be part of it when the king comes? Do you want to be identified with it? And so the baptism of John was this mark for those who responded to that message. For those who despite the hundreds of years of waiting were still waiting for the king. Still hopeful of the kingdom of Messiah finally coming. Still yearning for these Old Testament promises to be fulfilled. To see their arrival. They were those who like Anna were waiting for redemption in Israel. These are the ones then who in confessing their sins come forward to be baptised of John. It was a mark of association of the kingdom. That they were still waiting for it, still hoping in it. And their acceptance of John's message. That the king is coming very soon. So when Jesus himself comes for baptism. We can understand John's reluctance. We can imagine ourselves, had any of us been there, feeling exactly the same way. Whoa, what is Jesus doing coming for baptism? We understand that being aware of who Jesus is and what John is himself, John is very reluctant to baptize Jesus. And so in answering his reluctance, Jesus gives a very strong reason for going ahead with it. Suffer it to be so now, he says in verse 15. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. This is Jesus' strong reason for proceeding with the baptism. The fulfillment of all righteousness. And these are remarkable weighty words. Now, some of this is suggested that this just means, well, we'll do this because it's sort of the right thing to do and everyone else is doing it because it's the right thing to do and I'll do it as well. Or it'll look better to your ministry as a mark of approval upon it if I also am submissive to it, I'm baptised by it, even though I don't really need to be. But that kind of explanation can hardly do justice to the weight of language used that is a fulfilling of all righteousness. And perhaps here the word suffer, this old word in English, suffer, has given rise to something of this view of what Jesus is doing at his baptism. Suffer it to be so now. As if this was done only on sufferance, is the way we might use that word and make the association. John, let it be so. Let it happen. I know it's on sufferance, but just let it go ahead. Let Set aside your concerns and objections. We'll do it on sufferance. The word suffered here means, it's a strong enough word, but it doesn't mean that. It means, let this happen. And instead of anything like that, this baptism is an announcement that what John had been preaching of the imminent arrival of the king has now happened. It is, if you like, the final lens of the Old Testament. 
There was a light of God's promise in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would come. And each prophecy after that has been a focusing lens, narrowing down and clarifying the image that is shown in the light of the promise of the gospel. And lens after lens of prophecy has been added. And all the types and shadows of the Old Testament filling out the view of who Christ is and what he will do and what he will accomplish and how he will do it. John here, if you like, is the final lens of the Old Testament. A spotlight marking out once and for all the promised Messiah. And the whole Old Testament has been given in order to this purpose and to this moment to reveal who the Messiah is. The whole flood of Old Testament prophecies and practices and laws and ceremonies and feasts and miracles and kings and priests and covenants They have all, as each separate line, been converging upon this very point in history. So that there will be no confusion when it is finally shown the final, open, public identification of Messiah. That's what John's baptism is. To everyone else, a baptism of the kingdom. Here, the baptism of the king. That's the connection. Jesus' baptism is the final piece of the jigsaw, the final mark, as it were, before the light of the Old Testament gives way to the brighter light of the new. Who is to be the Messiah? What will he do? Who is he like? And John the Baptist is the greatest Old Testament prophet that there was because he was allowed not just to foresee, but to see Messiah. Not just to foretell, but to point and say, this is him. And by his baptisms, John has been preparing a people for the kingdom and for the king to take possession of his kingdom. And by their baptism, these people have been marked out as like members of this kingdom, professing to be part of it, waiting for the king, waiting only for the identification Of their king. And now here comes the king. And he submits to the very same marker that they submitted to. Why? In order to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus saw all the streams of the Old Testament. Converging at these fords of Bethabara. As bearing down upon him at that very moment in history. Knowing that there were each of them flooding their way towards him. For his public unveiling before this nation and before the world. And thus all the righteous promises of God would be fulfilled to send a saviour. And thus all the righteous laws of God would be met By his obedience. And thus all the righteous types and shadows. Would be also fulfilled. By his suffering and death. It would be a final. Fulfilling of all righteousness. When the true Messiah. Is finally unveiled. Before the nation. Formally. Fully. And finally. 
So this is not just the, the climax of the ministry of John the Baptist and his calling. But it is the whole Old Testament that has been coming together to this point. To fulfill all righteousness. That is to identify the Messiah. To make him known. So when he would come. There might be this weight of revelation. This undeniable cumulative revelation. Marking him out for certain. And so then the ford of Jordan. Bethabara was the place of Old Testament fulfillment. And Jesus himself is deeply conscious of that. And it was for this reason that he insists upon being baptized. That he might be so marked as the king of the kingdom. That all these people and all Israel have been waiting for. So what is Bethabara? It's the place of Old Testament fulfillment. Secondly... It is the place of New Testament fulfillment. We think of it as the place of Old Testament fulfillment. In another way, we can also speak of it as the place of New Testament fulfillment. In that, from here on, if you like, Jesus takes the baton of the gospel from John. And figuratively, we might say, from the whole of the Old Testament canon. And he bears now the entire burden of the completion of all that was promised and foreshadowed upon his own shoulders. Himself. It is all down to him now. And him alone. As John himself said. He must increase, but I must decrease. Rather like Elisha from Elijah, here Jesus takes the mantle, not just from John, but from the whole body of Old Testament writers and prophets and priests and kings. And Jesus was deeply conscious of this transition Deeply conscious of it. He says in Luke's gospel chapter 16 verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. But since that time the kingdom of heaven is preached. And every man presseth into it. The king is now here. The kingdom is now here. The doors of the kingdom are open. It was declared until John. But now it is here. Jesus recognized That he had taken over. John preached the imminent coming of the kingdom. Jesus preached that the kingdom had now come. So from Bethabara and his baptism. Jesus is inaugurated we can say. It is a place of his earthly coronation. It is a place of his earthly identification as king. And Jesus went there to fulfill this. That he would enter into his ministry openly, publicly and fully. Up until his baptism, Jesus made no public utterance. 
He claimed no special authority. He performed no open miracle. He called no disciples to follow him. He preached no gospel of the kingdom. He laid down no life for sinners. Until now, he has lived in relative obscurity up in Nazareth in Galilee. But now Jesus is consciously taking to himself the fulfillment of all the righteousness of the Old Testament. Prophecy after prophecy is marked against his life and he will fulfill them all. We are not to think that Jesus was, if you like, going through a list-ticking exercise, thinking of each Old Testament prophecy relating to Messiah and then doing it. No, he was fulfilling his own mission and commission. It was of him that the prophets spoke. But he is, his life is the primary. He has come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He has another baptism to be baptized of. And how he is straightened until that is accomplished. He has his cross ahead of him. And from this point the cross was never far from his mind and thoughts. And from this point his identification with his people was complete. He had to be of the same nature as them. But this was completed in the incarnation. But he also has to be taken from amongst them to be their king. The kings were always anointed in the Old Testament. And by his baptism. That's what happens to Christ. John in his baptizing of people has amassed a whole swathe of the nation who believe his message who are ready to endorse the man that he points out to be the messiah and their king and so when john then cried out behold the lamb of god which taketh away the sin of the world that was the identification that the nation needed there was the mission of christ in a single sentence to be the lamb to take away their sin here in Bethabara, I want you to think of it as a place, if you like, where Old Testament and New Testament meet in mutual appreciation. Here they join hands, where the burden of the revelation of God is transferred from the old to the new in the hands of Jesus. In this way, it is a place of Old Testament fulfillment and the place of New Testament fulfillment, the place of the fulfillment of all Righteousness. And notice in this way, Jesus says, Us, verse 15, that's what becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. He does not say, It becomes me to fulfill all righteousness, but us. John has his part. John, in the spirit of Elijah, must hand over the baton of revelation, as it were, from all the great men as predecessors of the Old Testament, Malachi, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, David, Moses. And he must commit the fulfillment of all these precious promises to one man, to Jesus. He must baptize him, and designate him as the king. He must fulfill all righteousness. And this light that has been handed down through the ages. 
John is ready to pass on for one last time to the one who would fulfill it once and for all. And so John, as it were, the last of the line of the Old Testament prophets, marks out Jesus and says, you are the king. You must fulfill it all. Thirdly then, it is the place of divine confirmation. The place of divine confirmation. Such an event, such a remarkable transfer and fulfillment could not be allowed to pass without the confirmation of heaven upon it. And that is what we find. Here the Saviour is to be publicly identified in his baptism. It is an open identification upon the earth. But it is endorsed by this great and holy sequence of heavenly accompaniments. First notice that the heavens opened. Verse 16. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. Oh, what is revealed here, friends? The first fruits of the baptism that he has undertaken. He's accepted his place as king of these people. What people? Sinners. They were all marked with a baptism of repentance, acknowledging their sin, acknowledging that they had no right to acceptance with God of themselves, seeking true repentance and entrance into the kingdom. For them, it was a message of John was entrance into the kingdom by repentance. And Jesus has now identified himself with these people. And said, I will be king of these people. Entering beneath the same waters of baptism as these people. What now? Heaven is not closed. Heaven by this is opened. What a remarkable thing. What great grace is this. Now that our Saviour has taken us, now that he has formally, publicly embraced us, as it were, heaven is opened. Opened, not closed. Oh, it was shut in Adam. And they were placed at the the, uh, garden entranceway. Those with flaming swords. It was shut in Adam. But it is opened in Christ. And what a welcome sight it was. Heaven opened. The veil of this this air. The stuff of this earthly life. Parting away. Splitting apart. Heaven seen. Through this fissure as it were. in, In what we think of as reality. The vision that was given into the place of divine dwelling. How was that done? By the sinless saviour taking up his office as our king and representative. And now in him, heaven opens its doors for us and welcomes us.
Christ is not debarred by associating with us, but we are welcomed by his association with us. And then comes down the Spirit of God too, like a dove, and lights upon Jesus. What is this? This is his baptism, as it were, with fear above his head for all to see. It was his endowment for office. What office? The Spirit went upon the kings of Israel in a particular way. The kings of Israel and Judah in that office. It was taken, of course, from Saul from, for his misbehavior, for his disobedience. But it was given, the Spirit was given to David. And he was never removed from David. The Spirit is given to the kings to fulfill their kingly office. And now it is given to Jesus. And this kingly endowment, this divine enabling, and thus is an endorsement by the Spirit himself, God the Spirit. And so it is noted that the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And that surely draws to our mind, just as we cannot help but think there of the dove as Noah drew the dove into the ark again with the olive branch in its beak, that marker of peace, that assurance of life. So here the person of peace, the Spirit of God, adds even greater emphasis, as it were, to the heavens being opened. Peace descends in the person of the Spirit. Ah, that was the angel's announcement, was it not, at his birth? On earth, peace. On earth, peace. What a wonder. That by this man, this baptized Jesus from Nazareth, God's Spirit of peace will come through him. The Spirit here in beautiful, heavenly arrangement and purpose showing that he will make himself, put himself as it were, at Christ's disposal, at Christ's dispensing throughout his ministry, throughout his mediatorial office even. And so the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, never more evidently than at Pentecost itself. This same Spirit descended upon Christ in the form of a dove, marking out the peace of God upon him and upon his ministry, dispensed graciously to the church of King Jesus. And in addition to even all this feast of things for the eyes of the people of God, comes this accompanying voice for their ears from the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The waters of John baptizing had said, this is the king to fulfill the Old Testament promises. The open he heavens had said, this is the head of his people. The descended dove had said, the spirit had said, he will accomplish true peace and I will enable him. And the voice of the Father says, this is my son. My son. He is the one prophesied. I now reveal to you 
that the Messiah, the King, the Saviour is in fact God, is in fact mine own Son, the Son of God, able to save and die with the Spirit, but no less God than he is man. My Son, my beloved Son. And all the identification that we need to know about who Messiah is, is completed in these events around the baptism of Christ. Who is he? He is the one promised in the Old Testament. Who is he? He is the one foreshadowed in the sacrifices. Who is he? He is the one baptized by John. Who is he? He is the one for whom the heavens open to all his people. Who is he? He is the one who possesses the spirit of peace. Who is he? He is the son of God, beloved by the Father. By his baptism, John claimed Jesus and as Messiah. And with that, heaven itself made the same grand declaration, endorsing, confirming, this is the Messiah. This is the King. This is the one upon whom the Spirit dwells. This is the one who will open heaven for his people. This is the one who is God's beloved Son and in whom he is well pleased. One of the commentators puts it like this. Lord, what reviving news is this to thy church? To hear that her head and her husband, her surety and mediator and intercessor, is in fact that only Son of God, in whom his soul is delighted and ever well pleased, that Son who always pleased thee, and by and through whom thou art well pleased with and reconciled even to thy offending creatures in him. Reviving news for thy church. So then Bethabara is this place of real confirmation for the ministry of Jesus. And as such it serves to sustain our faith in Christ. But then fourthly and finally... The place of Christ's comfort. Just one final aspect of this to bring forward. The place of Christ's comfort. Often in our Christian lives we look back at certain moments of special blessing and deep peace and joy and happiness. Times where we knew the closeness of our Lord in a special way and that serve to sustain us through our Christian lives in dark times and times that left a great mark upon us. And um, some of you know this, of course, but on, on New Year's Day in the prayer meeting in the evening, we had a question meeting and the text was from the Song of Solomon. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. Times like that in the Christian life, moments like that for the Christian when we don't want anything to happen that might disturb the the peace of the moment, the nearness of the Lord. Do nothing, oh, did nothing happen? That would take this away sooner than it's going to go anyway. Christ will come and go, as it were, for a time here, but let it be his choosing, not my sinning. And 
the brethren were able to speak of times of great precious joy in their lives where they could identify with these words. But Jesus himself was also a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he himself also needed spiritual comforts and looked for them and sought for them in this life. And he was a man who enjoyed spiritual blessings. And here in this baptism we have what must have been one of the greatest sources of comfort and assurance and blessing that the Lord Jesus ever had in his life on earth. The heavens opened to him. Indeed, on one reading of it, it may have been only him, particularly him, certainly, who saw these things. The Spirit descended upon him, and God spoke of him. Here we have it as, this is my beloved son. One of the other Gospels says it directly, thou art my beloved son. Indeed, after this, Jesus faces the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. Chapter 3 is a short chapter. If we'd read just into the beginning of chapter 4, you'd see that. There, no heaven opened above his head. There, the spirit that had descended upon him like a dove was actually the same spirit that now drove him out into the wilderness to face these temptations. And the very claim of his father was exactly the point of temptation that was constantly undermined by Satan's insinuations. If thou be the son of God. If thou be the son of God. Now Jesus could and would have rightly returned to this place in his mind. To Bethabara in his memory. A place of comfort for the Saviour. And that very thought that this place is a place of comfort to our Lord Jesus would make it, I'm sure, a place of sweetness to us in our thoughts. Think well of Bethabara, my friends. The place of comfort for your Saviour. How precious this ford across the River Jordan was and is when is a place that comforted our Saviour in his trials. Now, to some extent, we are extrapolating and assuming that Jesus would have found comfort in this place. But we can do so with some confidence. You see, Bethabara was visited once more by Jesus at another time. I wonder if you can remember another time when Jesus was at Bethabara. Jesus was being accosted by his enemies because he had said, I and the Father are one. They hated him and they'd taken up stones intending to kill him. And in John chapter 10 and verse 32, we'll read a short portion there from John 10, 32. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, 
Is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized. And there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. Where? Where John had first baptized on the other side of the Jordan in Bethabara. Notice a few points from this. Jesus had been speaking about his father. Saying that God was his father and he was the son. And that the father had sanctified him as the son. Vouchsafed him as the son. And yet they tried to kill him for it. For what? For repeating the truth revealed at his baptism. Jesus escaped from them. And was looking for a safe refuge, somewhere to go that would be beyond the scope of their uh, upsetting attacks. Where did he go? To the place where John at first baptized in the ford of the river at Bethabara, the place where Jesus himself had been baptized. And many came out with him and resorted to the same place. And this was their witness. All things that John spake of this man were true. These have been John's disciples. These are the ones who had heard John preach. Who had said to them, the king is coming. And who had identified to them, this is the king. This is the lamb of God. Bethabara then was this place of refuge for the saviour when they tried to kill him. And a place of comfort to him. When having gone there to escape. It became a place of double blessing. As many believed upon him there. A sweet place of comfort for the saviour. Even the Lord Jesus then. Needed to have a Bethabara. A place where the the waters of Jordan as it were. That river of death. A little shallower. Where they do not overflow or overwhelm. And surely it is not wrong then for the Lord's people from time to time to return to their own Bethabaras and seek comfort again, blessings from places and times of blessing in your own past, places where you've known the comfort and the peace of God before. And meanwhile, we can glorify God for this place, this little, almost unknown place called Bethabara, on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, this place of Old Testament fulfillment, this place of New Testament fulfillment, this place of divine confirmation, and this place of Christ's comfort. May he bless his word. Let us pray.